This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out bluewirepods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Well, you know, you're listening to Talk Rope Nation. You might know I'm Jim Ross, the voice of AEW, and we're glad you're with us. We're going to have one hell of a podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I finished these fights. Give me a hell yeah. Top Rope Nation. Learn to love it. It's the best thing going today. What's up, wrestling fans? It's episode 138 of Top Rope Nation. We anticipate this is going to be a big one. We've got a lot on deck. It wasn't always going to be that way. We have a uh, we've got an interview with former Ring of Honor World Champion, former three-time WWE Tag Team Champion PCO, aka Quebecer Pierre, aka uh, John Paul Lafitte. That's coming up here in the second part of this broadcast. But as we were getting ready to record tonight's show, as you all are very aware right now, it was just a bloodbath in WWE today when it comes to releases and furloughs. Uh, Everything going on with the COVID-19 pandemic has hit WWE hard. They are, probably when this is all done with, hundreds of people that work for the company are either going to be released or put on furlough, which is essentially like being laid off. Uh, So we're going to talk about all of that. We're going to talk about WWE uh, going live with all of their shows again and how that ties into what's going on uh, with the layoffs. Probably have some exclusive notes here that I don't think... Maybe maybe by the time you listen to this, we're recording this on Wednesday night. Maybe some of this will get reported. But as we record right now, some of these items are exclusives that have not been talked about related to what happened in WWE today on Wednesday, April 15th. So that's all slated for the In the News segment. But before we get to that, let me welcome in my co-host. By the way, my name is Ryan Drosty. You can find my work over at comicbook.com. And I am joined here by the usual suspects, Justin Joint. Kyle Ross. Justin, uh, strapping in for a pretty long show tonight. This might be the longest broadcast we have ever done, so hopefully people stay with us as we go. It's gonna it's gonna be like an NXT takeover match. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be like our WrestleMania preview show from a couple of weeks ago. I think our longest show ever was two hours and fifteen minutes last summer. This one may top that because we got eighty eight minutes with PCO and we got a lot to talk about before we get to that interview. Kyle Ross, we've had some technical difficulties. We got you actually calling in on your cell phone tonight. How you feeling over there, buddy? I apologize for my language before the show. That was uncalled for. 
a lot of frustrations on the line. Um, you want to hear the the pre-show, guys? Patreon.com slash Top Rope Nation each and every oh, week. Christ. <laughs> Support the show on Patreon. Get some exclusive content like the weekly pre-show where we just had a bunch of technical difficulties. You get uh, exclusive podcasts as well. Top Rope Nation Classics. Top Rope Nation Extra. Free gift when you sign up. Check it out over at Patreon.com slash Top Rope Nation. Like I said, guys, we recorded this interview with PCO a few days ago, so that's been in the can. We've been we've been ready to go, and uh, this WWE news just really hit us hard right off the bat today. I mean, all afternoon we've been texting back and forth about it. We knew some cuts were coming. Uh, I don't think any of us could have anticipated how bad it was going to be. Uh, some of the names shocked me a little bit. A lot of them didn't. But it's never good to see people lose their jobs, especially during this time. You know, I had a lot of people hit me up on Twitter about, well, AEW will sign them, New Japan will sign them. It's true. A lot of these people will find work, but we don't know when that's going to be, you know, because of the pandemic. If you get cut from WWE, there's really no way to earn a living right now. Some of them are getting severance packages. Some of them have podcasts and Patreon pages of their own. Some of them do not. So we don't know. I mean, yes, they will get signed, but there's no live events. There's no live wrestling happening right now. Um, Kyle, your take on what we saw today just initially. Well, and keep in mind, Ryan and Justin, that because of the times we're in, these other companies aren't in hiring mode right now. So when you talk about, yeah, some of these people could fought, land in different spots, that's not going to be for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like the thing that AEW is going to, go on a big spending spree right now is just foolish for any company for that matter. Um, you know, money's tight, you know, across the board. So, you know, for these guys and girls to get released now is really terrible, obviously. I mean, they're not going to have income um, for the foreseeable future. So that stinks. And, you know, for me, kind of hits home, um, you know, I'm not asking for any sympathy or pittance from anyone, but I'm unemployed too as a result of this pandemic right now. The sports industry shut down. And as I was sitting on Twitter this afternoon, um, I couldn't help but think back to March 12th, uh, which was the day that basically sports stopped. Uh, you know, I remember scrolling through Twitter and I just kept hitting refresh. And one by one, the conference tournaments were canceling. Uh, the NBA had suspended its season the night before. Um, NHL on that day, March 12th, decided to suspend its season. I think Major League Baseball as well. I remember looking at my wife and saying, this is over. (laughs) So I got to figure out something. And luckily, you know, I'm in a better position than, you know, maybe so. I work for myself. I was basically able to fire myself, (laughs) crazy (laughs) as that sounds, from my own company. And, and, you know, take the necessary steps to protect, you know, myself and my family and then do what I needed to do. But it sucks, man. I mean, it hit home. I mean, you like you said, you don't want to see people losing their jobs. I thought you had a great tweet uh, today, Ryan, when you were, you were like, oh, you know, some people were like, oh, you know, rooting for others to be let go and rather than their favorites. And, you know, rooting for anyone to lose their job is a terrible look, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And every single person, um, you know, who was let go today, my heart goes out. To them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Justin, your initial your initial thoughts to what we saw today. You know, it's really, for me, it's just compounded with, you know, what happened earlier this week with WWE. And my big thought is just, I am 
really tired of the WWE making me feel shitty for spending, you know, attention and money on their product. Yeah. Just, just it seems like it's at least every two or three years they're doing something, you know, where as a fan, you're like, I should I should just stop watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, Make, makes it hard to rationalize your fandom sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, always come back around to just, well, if I stop, it, I, obviously not just me, but, you know, there's a lot of good people employed in that company that, you know, deserve to have their job or good at their job. And when, when if you stop watching, you're kind of hurting them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to break this all down. We're going to bring in the numbers. We're going to talk about some of the people that got released and, and some of this exclusive news we have to break here in our in the news segment. Before we get to that, real quick, some housekeeping items. Guys, last week, our interview with Jim Ross, which I thought was a very, very good interview, um, that has become our most downloaded episode of all time. So guys, if you are tuning back in after joining us last week, maybe for the first time, thank you very much. We hope we can keep you around for the long term. And if you're tuning in for the first time this week, whatever the case may be, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review. If you like the Jim Ross interview, leave us a review, leave us a five-star rating. Same thing goes for Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you guys are getting your podcast from. It really goes a long way if, if you throw us that subscribe, if you throw us that uh, review. Helps us rank a little bit higher and reach new ears like the Jim Ross interview did last week. And like we assume this PCO interview is going to this week. And uh, this show is brought to you, I should mention, by the Blue Wire Network. We are a member of the Blue Wire podcasting family. If you like podcasts and sports, Blue Wire has a podcast for you. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and check out the whole lineup at bluewirepods.com. Also, special thanks to our partners over at betonline.ag. We will get to them a little bit more information and how you can get a sign-up bonus here in just a little bit. So, guys, with that said, let's get to In the News. All the latest wrestling news. Get behind the scenes inside a rental. One nine hundred nine oh nine ninety nine hundred. Calls cost the buck forty nine per minute. Kids, get your parents' permission, but call right now. All right, so we said we were going to talk about some exclusive information related to what's been going on at WWE. There's just been so much news in the last week, whether it is WWE going live, whether it's all these releases and furloughs we're gonna we're about to talk about. Um, Kyle, do you want to hit on this first, what's been going on with the TV partners? Yeah, sure. So there's some people that have been connecting the dots on Twitter, and I had my suspicions as well uh, because of something that wasn't on Raw Monday, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, Meltzer had a tweet um, that indicates to me he's aware of it. I expect this to be in the Observer tomorrow. But the bottom line is this. I can tell you that the WWE's TV partners – that being NBC Universal, who owns USA, obviously, and Fox, uh, both threaten to cut TV money if the WWE stopped running live shows. And when you go back to the decision that was made last week that Justin alluded to moments ago, um, that's where the genesis of all this craziness comes from. Now, does that justify today's layoffs? My answer would be no, because WWE when posed with that threat, made the decision 
to continue to run live and thus, you know, to my knowledge, continue to reap the full TV money. Yeah. So, so I don't think I, that's not something that, you know, I, I so the, the, there is that discrepancy there. So I want to emphasize, because this is something that people have kind of hinted at for the last few days, like maybe WWE is going live because perhaps this happened with the networks and and they were maybe threatening to restructure their contracts if they didn't run live shows, that they were slated to, you know, that they could only have so many tape shows per year. But that was all speculation. We are confirming uh, based upon word that we have gotten uh, from people familiar with these conversations that Indeed, the networks did threaten to cut TV money if they didn't run live shows. And that was that was the motivation behind what's going on right now with Raw, with NXT, with SmackDown running live, which is crazy, by the way, guys. It's, it's completely yeah. nuts during a pandemic to be bringing in people three days a week. It doesn't matter if they're running live shows or if they're airing taped specials because we've seen Raw is doing sub two million viewers. I got to think... No matter what they air, they're going to come in, in that ballpark. You know, the show the show is not doing two and a half, three million viewers regardless. So why risk you know, further outbreak uh, among their talent? By the way, we know someone at WWE did test positive recently for COVID nineteen. Um, not a wrestler, but an on air talent is what was reported. So with that happening too, it, it seems pretty crazy. <laughs> so Justin, what do you think? Or go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, I just wanted to say the thing that tipped me off that I alluded to moments ago that I was like, wait a minute here. Did you notice what was absent on Raw Monday night? I know I did there was, not. There was, something, there was something that didn't happen on Raw that we've been seeing regularly on Raw and SmackDown for weeks since this pandemic started. The answer is there were no tape matches. Oh, Yes. The uh, taking up, you know, an hour showing the old Royal Rumble and all that. Yeah. I, my alarm bells, because if this was announced, I'm like, man, this seems very irresponsible. I'm like, did the networks push them? And then when there was nothing taped aired, I was like, hmm. And I think some people were starting to connect dots then. I saw several people raise that point on Twitter. Hey, there was no, you know, old matches being shown. Mm. You know, is that from, you know, something that's come from the networks and, my guess is it probably did. And, you know, I'll let Justin talk, but I wanted to touch on what you said about live versus tapes and why I think the network partners are quite misguided. Right. So that, t- that tipped you off. We checked with a couple sources, and, and we were able to confirm that, indeed, mm-hmm. uh, this is what happened with the networks. Uh, Justin, what do you think? So with what's going on with the live versus tape thing, does this justify today's layoffs? Well, no. I mean, that the fact that they're going live and that they'll get this TV money makes it nonsensical that, you know, if they decide, Hey, we're going to continue to tape, but you know, if we're going to lose money, you know, from NBC universal and Fox, then uh, we're going to have to do some layoffs. So to me, it just kind of defeats the whole purpose of going live. Um, Granted, you know, they're losing whatever from uh, house shows, you know, or live shows, but you know, they, they turned a profit. Um, they've got money in hand. So it's just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense other than, you know, a a large portion of the people that were released weren't being used. Um, so maybe they're just trying to slim down, you know, their business model in general. 
Uh, and I just wanted to say going to the fact that, you know, NBC, Universal and Fox, you know, maybe threatening them that they need to go live. It's kind of dense thinking that that's the problem. And it's not that there's, you know, no crowd. It's also just a terrible, it's a terrible decision on the surface. Like knowing what's going on in this country, even if it is in their contract, you know, like this, these are kind of uncharted waters, you know, why demand that? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so for two different entities, NBC Universal and Fox to request that, that's just terrible. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, is there buyer's remorse on their part right now? You know, they're paying WWE all this money. Maybe they're not getting what they think in return and, and they turned around and, you know, they're just trying to, you know, save as much money as the next corporation. You know, that's going to be a big point of mine when we get to the end of this discussion that the higher you go up in corporate America, the grosser capitalism gets. And, you know, NBC and Universal, NBC Universal and Fox are, you know, really high up the food chain. I mean, WWE's small potatoes compared to them. Um, so, yeah, you know, I wonder if that's involved. I think the whole – Justin's right, by the way, with, you know, and, and I think I said it too earlier. Once the decision WWE made to go along with this and run live, mm-hmm. I don't – this isn't a case of like – somebody made said this on Twitter. It's not, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's like getting money from Peter and then just punching Paul. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they're just getting – they're just getting, you know, it's like, okay, well, we're still getting our money. Oh, but by the way – um, all you folks are, are gone. Mm. So, you know, and I really feel for people like Sarah Logan and Noe Jose, who were apparently essential personnel as of Monday, do TV jobs and are then fired two days later. Right. And, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing that the list of people who were let go, that decision was not made in the last 24 hours. And did WWE know, you know, when they brought them in Monday and, you know, people are risking their health when they make these trips, did they know that they were going to let them go two days later? That's pretty gross, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, with the network partners being misguided about live and tape, that, that's the other thing I wanted to hit on here is <laughs> you guys are right in that. Their their belief that oh if WWE's live you know these number these ratings are going to go up and more people are going to watch I just don't think that's the case no. throughout wrestling you know there's this notion oh taped is so bad spoilers killing the business show me when that's been the case you know I mean there's been instances to, to be you know with these old matches where the ratings have held up during the show mm-hmm. like it's not like you know, a simple ratings analysis, you know, it's not like the ratings like nosedive when they're showing these tape matches and then spike back up when the tape match is over. That's not been the pattern. So I think the networks are really misguided with the whole live versus tape thing. It is a unique circumstance. And WWE, you know, should be permitted, if it so choose, to do what, you know, was being reported, I think, at this time last week, that they were going to do about like three weeks of taping. Now, I think the three of us are all in agreement that there should be no wrestling. And I think an interesting thing is, well, okay, would Vince still want to run even if he wasn't being pressured by the network partners? That's a whole different thing. Yeah. yeah my, my guess is he would still want to run in some form, mm-hmm. obviously. What, what, you know, doing three live shows per week, I don't know. But he would want to run in some form is my guess. 
Yeah. Yeah, so we don't have, like, the live gates, obviously, but they're still getting this TV money, these massive television contracts, right? Uh, They have hundreds of millions of dollars in reserves, you know? So with that said, it makes makes, optically, at least, I know they're trying to satisfy their shareholders and all that, but optically, it looks really bad. I mean, I think you can justify it more if they, you know, they told NBC and Fox no and that they didn't run the live show, so they lost money on the TV contracts, it would suck, but that it would seem more rational that they made the cuts. Yeah. With them still getting these full TV deals and having those huge cash reserves, it yeah, it doesn't look good. How much do they have in cash reserve? What's the number? I forget. So some people, were, million? Yeah, some people were saying 90, but then Meltzer said that they had a report like last month that said 500 million. Okay. The money saved in these cuts today from the town... $4 million. That's like nothing compared to the cash they have on hand. Mm-hmm. Like that's the other thing too. It's not like, you know, these were, you know, they basically just, you know, took people low on the totem pole, um, on the in-ring side, you know, and, and the performer side and just, you know, drop that. And I, I just, you know, I mean, and what's so sad again and gross about corporate America, I mean, we see this, this, this is not something, a behavior unique to the WWE. I mean, to be blunt, we were joking about this in our text. And this today probably doesn't even rank among the top five, you know, scummiest days in the history of this industry. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. No, but I mean, um, you know, this, this is something you see a lot in corporate America. And the worst part is, look at what the WWE stock did today. Went up. Went up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, I mean, this, this is all about, again, it's not about WWE. It goes to that tweet that I retweeted that you liked, Ryan. This is not about WWE cutting costs to stay in business. Per se. It's about cutting costs to appease shareholders and appease uh, profit market, profit projections. Right. Is what this is all about. So, um, yeah, optically, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got a quarterly report coming out. Uh, the stock closed up 1.38% today, which 53 cents. The stock's trading at 38.90 per share right now. But it closed up, and we know stocks have been rough over the last month, to, to say the least. But, uh, yeah. yeah, they didn't save a lot compared to what they have in reserves and let alone those TV contracts. So it looks really bad. I didn't mention the names. I'm, I'm sure most people probably seen the list at this point. You know, but... <laughs> A lot of people, especially the producers. Um, the word is that Kurt Angle was released, but the rest of the producers, last I saw, those guys, uh, and yeah, those guys were uh, furloughed. So they could be brought back. And, and frankly, some of these names that they release, I guess they could try to bring back too. But uh, when, when yeah, the, that's when the, be, that, that's going to be very interesting to see who, because you know, some of these folks are going to go back. Right. When, they, when they have the chance, depending on what they're, you know, they're going to get offered probably, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe not what they were making, but uh, conceivably I have to be some more than other companies can offer to pay them. I mean, some of these names I can see making some noise elsewhere, like for sure. You know, you look at Rusev, who is one of the more surprising names, yeah. you know, Rusev could have a big run in Japan, right? Obviously, Anderson and Gallows could go back to Japan and make a lot of money. Um, we look at people like EC3, Leo Rush, 
Those are people that could make some noise. <laughs> I know you you always joke about them, Kyle, but Ryder and Hawkins, those guys have a huge fan following. Yeah. And, you know, they're a good team, I think. And I do think WWE has underutilized them for whatever reason. I mean, I understand. I like the guy, but uh, people really, really like Zack Ryder, and they have for a decade. And I feel like WWE has really dropped the ball with him well, and his partner, hey. Kurt Hawkins. Think about how important he was in discovering the value of social media. Yeah, exactly. For this company. I mean, he was one of the first who used it to promote himself as an individual. You know, now everybody does that. Mm. And I know it's a sign of the times and, you know, things have changed a lot over the last 10 years. But, you know, you always got to tip your cap to a guy who realizes, you know, whoever realizes it first. And he was probably the first guy in the company to do it. Yeah, when you look at this list, Rusev and Ryder, those two guys like got themselves over so much the, with the crowd at different points where there was just chance, like in other matches on the show. I remember watching a Raw one mm-hmm. time with We Want Ryder chance, like the entire Raw. And, you know, they never really capitalized on them. And I think I think Ryder and Hawkins, given their they just have this organic following with their podcast and everything and their YouTube channel. These guys could be a great addition to the tag team division in AEW, and I think they probably will make some noise down the line. Now, does WWE try to re-sign them? Maybe, but you know, if I were them, they've been sitting at home not doing much wrestling on main event. I would love to see those guys in AEW. So, I mean, those those are just a few of the names, but yeah, I mean, up and up and down the line here, we've got uh, we've got some NXT performers. Those names are just starting to come out with NXT being Uh-oh. live tonight. Um, they haven't all Where, come out where's yet. Where's my phone? No, I'm sorry. Where's my phone? Yeah, I want to look at that now because I, I I had heard the rumblings that, um, yeah, there were going to be more names from NXT coming yeah. tonight. And then you Why look at you've got uh, you know producers like I mentioned Angle. Uh, you got Lance Storm, who recently returned to the company. You got Shane Helms. You got Sarah Stocks, Scott Armstrong, Billy Kidman, Fit Finley, uh, Sean Davari, Mike Rotunda. Lots and lots of talent here, you know, in different aspects, whether they're on-air talents or backstage talents. Mike Chioda, referee, he's been around since 1989. Yeah. He's gone. You know where my phone is, by the way? You're on the phone. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> I'm looking for my phone well, while it's you... attached to my head. <laughs> Dumbass. What a horrible night this has been. Oh, Kyle. <laughs> Uh, any of these names in particular, uh, Justin, you agree with anything I said there? Any other names that stand out to you that you could see um, excelling elsewhere? There's just one thing I hope that happens, and that's two years from now, Heath Slater comes back when the, an additional like 40 pounds of muscle becomes world champion. <laughs> the the last member of the three-man band to become world champion. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you know, I, I just hope everyone, no matter, you know, look, and it's everyone's personal choice what they do once things kind of return to normal and business and and these promote various promotions get back into a position where they are hiring new talent you know it's up it's completely up to them where they want to go if somebody wants to just go right back to wwe i'm not gonna you know rip them and say oh you know come on stand up for yourself go somewhere look how they treated you you know their decision at their life but um Selfishly, I, I kind of would like to see most these people because, like you said, a lot of them weren't being used very much. Mm. 
in meaningful roles. I'd like to see them fly their trade elsewhere. Yeah. Career rebirths so, for sure. Yeah. And, and you, you know, it's, um, as long as it makes economic sense for them and their family, obviously. Um, you know, what's interesting though, too, about these cuts that kind of makes them like head, so head scratching and, and, and gross maybe to some degree is this movie was just kind of like paying these people to do nothing anyway. Mm-hmm. In some of these cases, I mean, the colognes weren't exactly, uh, you know, getting a lot of TV time yeah. <laughs> recently. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, nobody was just pay, paying folks to stand aside and like now, like all of a sudden, um, it's an issue where we can't do that anymore. You know, yeah. and they, they have nowhere to go. You know, they wouldn't have, this would never happen in a normal climate. We, we talked about it for a long time in the show. WWE doesn't let anybody go really because they don't want them going anywhere else. Well now, because you know, they know that these other promotions aren't a big acquisitions mode. They're just going to let them go now and, and, you know, hope to maybe claim as many of them back as possible. That's, you know, just kind of sick. Mm-hmm. So running these live shows has been a big topic as well, uh, because WWE getting this uh, you know essential services exemption, I guess, to run these shows in Florida. Uh, there's there's a political collect, uh, connection here, pretty obviously, with uh, what's going on with their connection to the Trump administration, and then how that relates to the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, and so there's there's what been. <laughs> <laughs> Your boy, the coach's Kyle. favorite guy. Uh, he yeah, deleted that Ron. tweet, by the way. <laughs> the coach oh, had a tweet, did. yeah, saying that uh, Ron no, DeSantis. Yeah, oh yeah, he deleted it. It's gone. I noticed the tweet because you had tweeted at him about that just horrendous take that the coach had, and the tweet's gone. But anyways, as you probably are looking into that, Kyle, let me just go through the timeline. There's been a lot of good reporting on Where's this. Where's my phone? Yeah, <laughs> on April first. Governor DeSantis issued an executive order for essential services after speaking with President Trump. On April 9th, the governor amended the order to include professional sports and media production, including entertainers with a national audience. You know what else happened on April 9th? Linda McMahon, of course, wife of WWE CEO Vince McMahon, a former cabinet member in the Trump administration, announced that the super PAC that she is running for the Republican Party and Donald Trump will spend $18.5 million in the state of Florida, specifically in Tampa and Orlando. So on the very same day that Linda McMahon and the super PAC announced they're spending $18.5 million in Florida, WWE was granted the right by the governor of Florida as an essential service to run live events. As were other pro sports, by the way, too. So we'll see how this impacts AEW. That's a whole nother discussion. Uh, yeah. But it was the next day, then April 10th, that Vince McMahon decided to resume live TV in Orlando. Uh, AEW, I guess they're going to run double or nothing at this point at the end of May with no crowd. Personally, I can't mm. imagine spending $50 on a pay-per-view with no crowd. I think they probably should have just canceled it. So I don't think AEW is without criticism right now. To put it bluntly, uh, but we, we're in different times, uh, is for sure. Kyle, what do you make of those political connections? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to yeah. connect those dots. Uh, you know, my guess is the edict from the TV partners came down and started really scrambling. Uh, how direct he was in calling in a favor, who that favor may have been called to, we don't know. We'll never know that. 
Um, but, you know, they got the go-ahead from Ron DeSantis, and here we are. Yeah. Justin? Yeah, by the way, for AEW, um, you know, who this hurt, who this pandemic hurts just as much, if not more so. I mean, think about them. They were coming off their best two months of TV. They had that revolution pay-per-view that was so well-received. They had some real momentum, and it just came to a screeching halt. Um, so good thing for them. They had just gotten that some new TV money of their own. Yeah. Um, but you're right. They're, they're not uh, absolved of all blame here. I do not think double or nothing should be taking place um, in an empty arena or not. Mm-hmm. What do you think about double or nothing, Justin? Uh, I just put it on TV. I'm, I'm certainly not going to be paying 50 bucks to watch an empty arena show. Yeah. Especially in, in these times. Yeah. It's, um, it's a the misread of the market, I think for sure. And then the other thing I was just going to say is I, I'd be willing to bet that we're going to see a couple WrestleManias in Florida in a short amount of time too. Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Probably. Yes. They have three big cities and they like to go there. So, yeah. You know I mean? Heck, they, um, you know, they were obviously, um, ready to, uh, and they were just there three years ago. I was there in Orlando. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I mean, they let's go ahead. And then they were in Miami for 28. And Tampa's going to get so the redo for sure. Yeah. Tampa get the redo. So this would have been the third one in nine years. Same state. That's, you know, they already like going there. So yeah. Uh, uh, my guess is, yeah, we're going to see more in Florida. So speaking of mania and these live events, uh, the other tidbit we had that I don't think has been reported anywhere, at least as we record this, uh, to piggyback on top of what we said about the networks a little bit ago, has to do with uh, what WWE, what their conversations have been within the company about arena business for the rest of the year. And uh, Kyle, do you want to tell us what those discussions have been within WWE? Yeah, they're basically, they, the feeling is that arena business for 2020 is basically dead. Um, you know, it's going to be a long time till they can, you know, even be allowed to run arena shows proper. And then the thinking is, well, who's going to want to go to these things? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. Okay. Well, let's say, I don't know, just throw out a month, like August or September or something. You can, you, the fan can attend a WWE show. It's what we're like, you want to like, have you ever been in these modern arenas? The seats aren't that large. I mean, do you really want to like sit next to somebody you don't know? Mm. So, you know, I mean, who knows how that's going to be? I mean, I was having a discussion um, with my family the other night. Somebody asked about like Ohio state games or something like, like how that's going to go. And, you know, my wife and I were like, well, you know, who knows? Maybe they just like sell a third of the stadium or something like that. And that's the thing that I think could be for these arenas, even when, fans are allowed to attend these events you can't be selling like you know at full capacity not that wwe would fill an arena anyway but i mean there's gonna have to be space it's gonna have to be like you know one row has you know four people at one end and then the row after that has like four people at the other end right yeah. i mean it's gotta yeah. be something like that i mean i mean are you gonna want to sit next to some stranger no, nope. who knows where they've <laughs> not been? Me. You know? I would not want to. No, you know, you know what the mark of the quad cities or whatever. I mean, come on now. <laughs> yeah, no, probably not. Uh, it's it's going to be a long time to get back to normal. And uh, as we sit here quarantined at home for weeks on end already, 
and knowing it's going to be that long wait, it's kind of difficult to think about, but yeah, that's the reality. That's where we're at. Yeah. And then again, you know, okay, well, you know, arena business, it being dead for the year. Well, do we, um, you know, does that justify the last again? I would kind of say no, because arena business being dead applies to every wrestling company right now. You're not seeing those kind of lasts. Now we could, I mean, the longer this goes, um, we could see, you know, some of these promotions, but you know, once all of a sudden, Hey, you know, all this lost, you know, you're, you're having months of lost arena revenue. Maybe there's going to have to be some unfortunate decisions made uh, by those companies as well. But, um, if the one company in this business that you would think could sustain that, I mean, there's no denying who that is. Mm. WWE, I mean, they're bigger than everybody else combined. Yeah. So, so if no one else is laying off people, I mean, come on, WWE, again, bad optics. Yeah. So do we have any closing comments on this whole situation in the story and what's, what's been happening? Anything else on our minds here? Justin, anything else you want to say? No, it's just uh, it's really sad, and who would have seen it coming that the people who run professional wrestling are just probably not good people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle? One thing to say, other than, you know, capitalism is gross, uh, the higher up corporate America you go, and I just keep waiting for Stone Cold music to hit and Bernie Sanders comes storming out, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> said that um, in the text the, thread earlier. <laughs> yeah. So the one closing comment based in reality that I have um, has to do with something we talked about on the show a couple months ago and some irony there. George Barrios and Michelle Wilson, who were basically the two most important people in the company, not named McMahon, when they were let go, what was reported as one of the disagreements they had with Vince, they thought that there was too much talent, that they were spending too much on talent. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the notion that they couldn't understand because, you know, the, the Monday Night Wars mean probably very little or nothing to them. Like the idea of basically, you know, paying people all this money to do nothing and just hoard them just so they couldn't go work somewhere else. Well, there's an iron Barrios and Wilson are let go. Um, and I'm not saying anyone should weep for them or anyone will weep for them, but you know, two months later, what does WWE do? They do basically what Barrios and Wilson were probably pressing Vince to do. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, there's some irony there. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to get to this interview. I, I, I assume next week we're going to have a whole lot more to talk about with uh, what's been going on. And, you know, if any more big news hits between between now and the end of next week when we put out episode 139, perhaps we'll do a Top Rope Nation extra. You know, we got extra time on our hands, our, our Patreon show. Uh, if you want those exclusive shows, again, check out patreon.com slash Top Rope Nation because it's certainly possible uh, with all these changes going on in the wrestling industry that we're going to want to talk before the end of next week. But we'll see what happens. Uh, guys, we do have this 88-minute interview with PCO coming up. He's a super interesting guy. He talks about so much. We talked about his time in WWE. We talked about his time recently in Ring of Honor. 
it's a really good interview. I think you guys are all going to enjoy that. And then after we hit that interview, we're going to bring it back here and we're going to hit Kyle's deep dive of the week. So stay tuned for that as well. I, yep. I wanted to talk about one awesome thing that we got to talk to BCL about. Yep. Too. The Brawl for All documentary, yes. which aired the what the night before we got to interview him, mm-hmm. um, peeling the curtain back a little bit. So yeah, PCO had a lot of comments on that documentary, and you know, truths and maybe some tall tales uh, that may have been told in it. So be sure to check that part out. In addition to all the other <laughs> uh, questions, he was kind enough to ask. Yeah, you definitely want to hear that, especially if you watch Dark Side of the Ring, because he goes into, you know, the pairings and was that a legitimate draw or not? Really interesting. That's been in the news a lot. He talks about his heat with the click. He talks about his match with Bret Hart, uh, whether or not he was close to going to AEW, winning the world title back in December for Ring of Honor. A lot of topics covered. One of the best interviews we've ever done on this show. So I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. And so we'll get to that here in just a minute, but before we do, I wanted to mention our partners over at Bet Online. So, with, with currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on, and you would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Friday the 13th, it was the Monsters Day as he mashed his way to the ROH World Championship by defeating the previously unbeaten Roosh in a wild anything-goes match in the main event of ROH's biggest show of the year at UMBC Event Center. While the story of PCO being resurrected by his creator Destro may be fantastic, Pierre-Carl Roulette's long and arduous journey to the World Championship is every bit as extraordinary. At 51, PCO became the oldest ROH World Champion in history, finally reaching the pinnacle in a 32-year career in which he's experienced more than his share of adversity. We are here today with a 30-plus year veteran of the sport of professional wrestling. He's worked in virtually every major promotion you can think of. You may know him as Pierre-Carl Ouellette, Quebecer Pierre, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, several other ring names, or most recently as a Ring of Honor world champion. We would like to welcome PCO to Top Rope Nation. What's going on tonight, PCO? Oh, (laughs) I, I'm at home uh, on the confinement. Uh, I mean, pretty uh, easy, quiet night. So the perfect night for uh, talk to you guys. 
Heck yeah. Well, we are very grateful you took the time to talk to us here on Top Rope Nation. How are you doing with the uh, the social distancing and everything going on in the world right now? It's a pretty crazy time. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, uh, we're uh, in uh, Montreal, Quebec here in Canada. We're, we're doing pretty good, I would say, but all the events, uh, uh, Grand Prix, uh, Car racing at Formula One's been canceled for June 14, I guess. Uh, uh, the uh, Jazz International Festival has been canceled. Uh, the tennis tournament, uh, the WTA has been canceled, or the, the men's tennis tournament. I don't know, like uh, all the events for the summer have been canceled. So yeah. it's hard to know when things will go back to normal or um, I don't know. I really, uh, I think uh, we're expecting the peak here for uh, April 18th. So from, from that point on, uh, I know that uh, most of the uh, case at uh, hospitals have been going down for uh, intensive care. Uh, a lot of uh, the curve is just going, going down. But they don't. The government don't want to take any chances. So we'll see yeah. how it's gonna turn out. Gonna, but uh, we're we're on the good side of the of the curve right now here. I saw that Ring of Honor. They just canceled pretty much all of their shows through the end of May. So yeah, your your wrestling career has got to be kind of in flux right now. Well, I think at least it's uh, it's fair for everybody. You know, it's uh, it's fair. Uh, Everybody's going through the same thing. All, all, pretty much every company's, and I think that even WWE should should, should not be wrestling uh, because you know they're more. Uh, and first of all, because no crowd. It's to me, it's uh, it's very hard. It's it's not interesting. I think it's uh, I think it's a sport where you know. More than anything else, it's an happening. It's uh, excitement. It's all about, you know, living something live. And uh, I just think it's uh, so out of bound what we're doing right now. What what's going on with wrestling in front of nobody? It looks like a, a wrestling practice. So it, it, it's hard. But my my hat to the guys that are doing it, though they're they're doing the best of it. Yeah, we've we've been talking about that on the podcast a lot. It's just really bizarre watching wrestling, trying to cover wrestling with no crowd. It, it like you said, it is really hard to get into. Um, I think what we want to do here is we want to kind of talk about what's been going on recently in your career, first and foremost, and then uh, then we'll kind of deep dive and go back into the early days of your career. So with that, I'm going to throw it to Kyle for our uh, first question. Yeah, uh, Carl. Uh, you said in the past that you've had a you had a plan for this comeback, and that plan did include winning a world title. But still, do you have you ever taken time, sit back and say, "Oh my gosh, fifty two years of age, and I did it. I won a world title." It, it, completing the plan is that something you ever could have imagined? Uh. I've I've taken the time, but uh, and I'm totally happy with the way that 
everything went, but uh, I I feel that there's still something missing a little bit, you know, that I haven't accomplished. Uh, you know, I was really uh, hoping that in 2020, uh, you know, during my time with the title of here in Canada, I. I became so hot because I was like invi- invited on all the most important TV talk shows, the ones where, you know, even inter- international stars like Kiss and you know, GSP and, uh, and uh, David Copperfield or, you know, uh, Enrique Inglés or whatever, you know, they they all been on those shows and then and then I was on so many shows that that uh, the the whole uh, province of Quebec uh, was like seriously they really wanted PCO to perform at the uh, Bell Center in Montreal and uh, defend the title and uh, I was very disappointed that uh, that. No, that can happen for different reasons. So, uh, and also, I really wanted to, as a champion, to uh, get on more shows in the states and then in uh, and, and New York and in LA, and uh, wanted to get on uh, uh, a lot of. Uh, I wanted to get a lot of exposure for the Ring of Honor World Title. And to be able to perform in front of like uh, really good, solid, sold-out crowds and do good ratings and good uh, gates and numbers and, and things like that. So that's uh, so that's like uh, I have accomplished uh, half of my goal, basically. Uh, I'm not uh, fully accomplished yet. Before all this went down. Oh, sorry. Before this all went down, you, you were, needless to say, had to be pretty happy with how things were going, though, correct? Yeah, of course, yeah. Okay. So you retired in uh, 2011. I was curious, what uh, what was kind of your motivation for coming back in 2016? Uh, and uh, kind of what what was the inspiration or uh, the brainchild of the, the PCO character? Well, the thing is, I never really retired like I if I would have retired I would have uh, probably had a retirement match and tried to uh, you know have my family there and my daughter and uh, you know uh, pretty much everybody that I've been involved in my recent career job my life you know a lot of uh, journalists and a lot of uh, uh, promoters uh, and, and things like that so Basically, what happened was like uh, uh, to 2003, I had like uh, an awesome match uh, here in Montreal for the UAF as a tryout, where <clears throat> I totally killed it. And then got a phone call two weeks after saying, like, uh, Stephanie and Creative didn't have anything for me. So, uh, 2005, I went to Puerto Rico for six months. and almost a year, I'd say. Six months for sure, and then uh, worked on a different character. I was working on a character and a gimmick, and then uh, I uh, 
sent some tapes, you know, and footage to John Laurinaitis and then Montreal. Like, I met with them, supposed to have a match, but that couldn't go through because the match, the guy wanted to go 12 minutes. They wanted me to go over in five minutes for his match with my own row. So that kind of got canceled. So I was kind of thrown out of the way. Uh, it was just a tough blow. Um, then uh, I did my voiceovers for three years uh, for a TNA in French here in Montreal. And then it's getting paid like great money, very, very good money. Uh, just doing like, uh, we were shooting, like taping two hours in one week. And uh, <laughs> it was excellent money, actually. And it was good, you know, um, uh, nice and easy, uh, comfort zone, things like that. So I uh, I spoke to the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, producer and told them that I wanted to get out of that job. And then he said, uh, what's the reason for, you know, we're having good, you and Mark, you know, Mark Blondin was my partner, a guy who used to work for Vince before in the 80s. Was a play by play, was a colleague from there. And I said, no, I said, that's not what I want to be. You know, I'm too young to be a commentator. I want to be a world champion. So uh, I said, uh, I'm, I'm going to quit this job and I'm going back. Uh, I want to go back in England and work full time over there. And he said, well, if things don't work out the way that you want, I can hold on to your job for three months. And then I told him, if I do that, I don't believe in myself. And uh, you should just hire someone else because I'm not going to come back and do this job again. So I went to England and uh, spent like nine months to a year there. I met Marty Strilled that year in 2007, 2008. I met also Nicole They were pretty young boys starting up in the business, uh, was working for All-Star Wrestling. And when WWF was touring, WWE was touring there, I would show up, you know, just just showing that I was busy all the time. And then uh, had trial match against Tommy Dreamer. And uh, it was good uh, during the ECW show. And uh, it's not, uh, no, we don't have anything for you. So I kept grinding, grinding. I did like in the East End of the States, uh, it was in Massachusetts, New Jersey. Got to hook up with Danny Demento uh, during that time. And eventually uh, called me up for a meeting in the Stanford, Connecticut, uh, which was 2008 or 2009. And uh, so just choose a date in July and we'll make sure that we give you a good opponent and uh, give you a fair chance and uh, we'll, we'll make sure, you know, we'll give you a good chance. And uh, so I had any date open for July, so I had chosen uh, 21st of July. And everything went wrong from from my departure from Montreal. My flight got delayed. On, like, I had a connection because I had to go had to drive through the border and then fly from Burlington. And then my flight in Burlington got delayed four or five hours and then I had much sleep and there's no excuse, but it was just a bad day. And uh, I was trying to uh, uh, go with an MMA type of deal uh, style where I had done a lot of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai karate and things like that. So I was uh, shooting the ideas to 
to Ricky Steamboat and John Laranis and <clears throat> Pat Patterson, and nobody was getting along with what I was trying to do. So basically, I was really uh, going against uh, the flow and the tide of what the reaction was for what I wanted to do that night. So, so I had that match and uh, pulled me out in the office and they said, well, you know, don't even come to Philadelphia tomorrow for SmackDown. We're not going to use you. So they said, just, just take your rental car and just drive it back to Montreal. And so that was like a, really one of the toughest blow there. Mm. Um, and uh, that's why uh, then, then I... I didn't know what to do after that because I was pretty, you know, knocked out from that conversation and the way that things went wrong and didn't go my way and, and, and things like that. So uh, I kept on training, kept on working hard and things like that. And uh, 2011, I got a call for a radio show in Montreal and the, uh, the, the host asked me what was going on with my wrestling career. And I And I said, I don't know if I will ever come back. It might be, might be the end of it by the way that things turned out, you know. So, so uh, just that radio interview made the news that, okay, I had retired. So that's why you see retirement in 2011. But that was no, that was not a big, a big retirement like it was nothing special it was just talking with someone on the radio like I do with you guys you know mm-hmm. and I I didn't see much light at the end of the tunnel back then so uh, so I I just kept on going and doing like jobs you know that I didn't like and uh, eventually in 2016 a few uh, promotions wanted to asked asked me if I wanted to wrestle for them. So uh, I did one first, and I was not really happy with the way that, that things went myself. And then, uh, and then uh, someone had a, a big uh, YouTube channel, uh, the Animal TV, uh, asked me if I wanted to work for their promotion. So I agreed, and I did like two or three shows. But I did one, and... Uh, well, it really got over, and then from from that match, a lot of people were checking out on YouTube. And then uh, Michael Brennan from Indiana called me up and asked me if I wanted to go to Indiana. And I didn't know that indie wrestling uh, were kind of hot at that time. So I did um, ask me if I wanted to do uh, January 13, 2018, or April 21st. So. I said I, I knew what I, where I wanted to be by WrestleMania. I wanted to be at WrestleMania, so I said, "All right, I'm gonna take January 13th, even though I had met Destro in October, starting to train with them like uh, every day, and uh, I felt like I wasn't ready yet, like big time ready, but I felt like I was, you know, capable of." having a great match, so I won against all, all Eagle Eaton Page, and we killed it, 
there, and George Angler was there watching the match. And then on the way back to the hotel, Joey asked me if I wanted to be part of George Angler's Spring Break 2 at WrestleMania 35 weekend. And then I agreed, and then I had that match against Walter, and and uh, Danny DeMento was Joey's partner that I had previously met him in 2008. So it's like everybody that had met, Back in the days that I thought that those years were behind me and they, nothing there, nothing led to anything good. Things started to click, and then um, and then uh, I did the match against Walter, and they said, "Well, we can fly you to Louisiana." So I drove there forty hours. And, Forty yeah. hours back into Montreal. Wow! And I was not doing it for the money. I was doing it because I knew that night that was going to turn my career around. I had that feeling. I had like I had a vision that night, and I knew that this was going to be a, a huge moment for myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I didn't need the money or anything like that. I was doing well. Uh, but I just I just went along with it and uh, I did it and uh, everything has changed after that. You know, it, one of it, one of us was actually at that match. Out. One one of us oh, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, I would. Kyle yeah. was there. Yeah, I was live at the match uh, with Walter uh, in New Orleans. Joey Janelle's Spring Break, like you mentioned, was that going back to the, you know, your plan, the whole concept of your plan? Was that when you maybe? I don't know, first, if that's a fair question, but is that when you realize this is really working, my plan? Well, that, that was always the same. Like, since I was 14 years old, I wanted to be a world champion with a major federation, a major organization. And uh, that that was always there. And, and that's the way I work in life. You know, I always envision the end result of what I want and I really don't know what's going to be the adventure. How am I going to get there? And every time that I failed, I, I kind of readjust, you know, the way that I'm doing things and try to learn from my bad experiences and try to adjust and, and not blame the whole world for my failures, but look at myself in the mirror and what I've done wrong, what, what, what thing that I could do better. So it's, it's also a lot of working on yourself as a person because you cannot be a pro wrestler without having human, you know, human relationships with people or uh, you have to always sell yourself uh, or sell an idea or sell something, you know, during your whole life. Everybody does. Like all of you guys are doing the same thing. I'm doing this. I got to sell stuff to my daughter. I got to sell stuff to my dad, to my whatever. If you're in business, to your uh, people that are buying from you and things like that. So I I really looked at it like a, as a uh, personal development. You know, like what do I have to to do? How can I do this better? And 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 looking starting from my years in WWF and from everything that I have done wrong. And, and being at peace with, you know, with everything that went wrong, like, you know, that means also, uh, you know, 
being in good terms with Shawn Michaels and being in good terms with big Kevin Nash and and then the uh, I, I considered them like especially Kevin and, and Scott Hall I consider them like good friends of mine now and even though we we've been through a lot you know but every time that I see them I'm having fun with them and uh, it just it, it, that's that's the plan you know that's the plan it's like I never like really quit on my my burning desire that I had and I always imagined the, the end result and, um, and, and, and the picture that I always envision and imagine it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, sold out place. And it's a, it's a crazy, hysterical crowd. And it's, uh, it's really, really exciting. And there's a lot of excitement of a lot of electricity in the air. And, uh, that's why I feel that, uh, I have accomplished a lot, you know. If, if if I would have died, like tomorrow, I would be unhappy because I I've reached a goal, but it's I haven't reached what I what I expected to reach yet, you know. That's why I keep on going, you know, because I really want to uh, to retire as a uh, as an accomplished wrestler for for what I have in mind when I started this. Well, your, your career really took off once again. Definitely a career renaissance after that 2018 match with Walter. I mentioned at the top of the broadcast the success you've been having at Ring of Honor. You know, world champion from December to February recently. You've been a tag champion there. Uh, two questions. Could you tell us kind of what drew you to Ring of Honor initially? And then to follow up on that, were there any discussions at all in the last year with AEW? whatsoever yeah i mean um had a little bit of discussions with aew when i signed with ring of honor uh but they at that time they didn't have like uh the tv deal set up you know they were just they had like three shows lined up Mm -hmm. and uh they had done the uh all in and uh i wasn't uh, when ROH, uh, uh, Marty had reached out to me like a few times by, by, uh, by text, you know, asking me if I had signed with anybody or, or if I was under contract. I was doing MLW at the time and a lot of the guys were under contract with them, but I never signed. I didn't want to sign a deal with MLW. I didn't want to sign a deal with Impact Wrestling. Uh, I wanted to keep my options open. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, when I met Marty in 2008, 2009, I, I got along good with him and, and, uh, and Nick Aldis. So uh, it was that connection there already that we knew each other and I kind of trusted him. So, uh, so I had a few texts from Marty. Then eventually I went to WXW in Germany uh, in November 2008. Uh, 18, 2019. Uh, no, it was, yeah, it's a, yeah, I think uh, last year. Anyways, November last year. Uh, not this year, but the year before, yeah. And uh, when I first signed, because I signed my, my contract that I signed the first time, uh, it was uh, December uh, 1st, 2018, yeah. So I was in Germany 
And uh, now the office is, is calling me, and now we're talking money, and we're talking contract, and, and we're talking, you know, uh, it's getting serious now. It's just, it's not just questions now. It's getting down to really business. And uh, they, they brought me in and, and to Baltimore, and they showed me the dojo, the uh, Sinclair uh, Broadcasting uh, Building, and all the big offices. And, and I'm, I've met with everybody uh, involved with Ring of Honor, the office, and they, they really treated me like really well and really professionally. So... I was really impressed by the way they handled the whole thing, and it was so professional. That, uh, and it made me uh, such uh, a good offer that, uh, you know, it was hard to uh, not take it because uh, I knew that they had been in business, you know, for 17 years, and uh, they had 217 TV stations, and they had, like, uh, capitals, you know, money, and uh, we could compete. So uh, I never regretted my, my decision. And uh, so, I would, yes, I had talked with with uh, AEW, and it was, you know, I made my debut, and they were exiting, basically, because I made my, uh, it was... Um, Final battle uh, fallout. So it was just after final battle. So it was their last night and ring of honor. All the guys there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're like, you know, we just had like good conversations and everything was cool. They knew where I was going to stay. I made my debut there. So they knew I had fine with them. But, the, but when they reached out to me, also I had already committed myself uh, by an handshake. I had nothing signed, but I already sh- shook hands and said that, you know, the deal was on. And we just needed a few, you know, adjustments on the contract. So uh, it would have been really uh, hard for me to... Uh, go back on that handshake and, and go for AEW uh, and not knowing what, what the future was going to be for them and knowing what kind of know what the future was going to be for Ring of Honor because they had been doing great business until then. So so basically we were jumping jumping in their, mm-hmm. in their spots, in their spotlights, me and Brody King. Well, you're you're certainly a man of your word, so we could uh, use more of that in the in the world today. I think so. That's that's good to hear. You had the handshake agreement and followed through on that. Um, I do want to pivot to something that aired just uh, let's see last night as we record this, and uh, and that is the third episode of the Dark Side of the Ring on Viceland. They just aired yeah. the episode on as luck would have it as we record this on the Brawl for All, which you participated in. So you didn't directly get interviewed for the documentary, at least what aired, uh, but footage of your match with Dr. Death, Steve Williams was in the documentary and Jim Ross talked about you a little bit. 
Um, he had mentioned that maybe you shouldn't have been in the tournament given the eye patch situation and your vision. Um, for the, for the people listening that don't know that story, uh, what, what's the story on how you lost the vision in your right eye? Uh, I was 12 years old and, uh, I was just a kid that was doing a lot of crazy things and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we, uh, I was with my friends, and we we just decided that we're gonna. We all had like pellet guns, and we just decided to start to shoot everything with our pellet guns, and uh, from birds to cat to neighbors to everybody and everything. And then we went through all the pellets. We didn't have any. I mean, we were probably five guys, I guess, and then. Uh, I found something in my house. It's like a that plate, a pickup stick, so we can, uh, we're gonna, you know, shoot ourselves in the leg just to be careful. And then that was hiding behind a counter, and you know, the the, the that plate, a pickup stick play. Again, the, the the sticks are different colors and with rounded edge. You know, it's not like a like a uh, something that you know, it's a rounded point. But basically, it's not just a like a knife or something like goes into something smaller. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, you know what I'm talking about? This, the pickup game, uh, yeah. the, the game that you can play. So mm-hmm. we were putting that in the cannons and, and, and I decided to hide myself behind the counter in the kitchen. And then when my, my friend saw me, like he went for my leg, but I was on my knees. So that went to the skin of my eye. And I pulled out that stick and the, the eye kind of split in different ways. And then mm. I was bleeding from my eye. And then I was so like adrenaline rush that I was like, I, I took the towel and I put some cold water on it and I put on over my eye and I looked in the mirror and said, oh man, I think I'm blind. I'm like, no, I can't see. I can, no, I'm blind. No, I can't see. And I was so like, you know, hysterical and um, pack of nerves. I called my mom's. We were like the convenience stores. And some of my parents were working, and I was by myself after school, and I was just doing some crazy things. And then uh, the uh, the my uncle brought me to the hospital. And I fell unconscious on my way to the hospital. Uh, by the time I got out of the surgery room, like I had spent four hours on the table, and they, uh, they just saved the eye itself and not to remove my eye, but they said to my parents that I couldn't never see again from that eye. So, But my eye, they could have moved from left, right to left, up and down, but there was going to be no no visions anymore. So uh, I was 12 years old and uh, that was um, one of the first uh, tough things that I had to go through, uh, tough tests in life that I had to go through. Uh, all my family uh, members, family members were all crying and they felt like they were really down and I was just trying to make them feel better and telling them that oh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be all right. Don't worry. And especially my grandmother, she was really sad about the, the whole thing. And she, she spent every day with me at the hospital and my parents really supported me during the, 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 the test. And, um, 
that's how that's how the eye thing happened. And I always wanted to, uh, you know, turn a, uh, a negative into a positive, and I wanted to uh, inspire people with that and the, you know, what I would call a light handicap, which is not so light, but you know, it's it's not something that prevents you from doing anything. You can still do sports and things like that, but a lot of people sometimes they they have a hard time to get up from things like that, and I I just wanted to inspire people, and that's why uh, when I had the chance to talk to Vince about you know doing something, I I wanted to uh, do something with an eye patch, and then we came up with the pirate. They they came up with a pirate. I, I wanted to be a pirate, but I wanted to be a baby face or start a real intern face, but I I didn't want to be Jean Pierre Lafitte. The grand grand grandson of Jean Lafitte from from France, who lived in Louisiana. I just wanted to be myself. But you know, Vince being Vince, you know, uh, that's that's the way it went, but I was so happy about it, you know, because I had good time, uh, good communication with Vince back then, uh, had good meetings, and uh, he was he was really good to me uh, until the the whole uh, incident happened with Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels. Everything was going like I was doing fine. Uh, I had very I was good with. Pretty much everyone in the office. Even Jim Ross really was a, let's say, a big fan of me. You know, like he, he would write me good, uh, positive, like uh, Bert Dickard, and uh, always a good uh, message, and just to keep working hard and working hard. That was, you know, uh, I had a lot of skills and God given skills and things like that. And so. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird to hear uh, Jim Russ saying my name, Carl. <laughs> you, 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 uh, you did it like you, you, you did it perfectly when you said Pierre Carlouet. You had that perfect like uh, intonation. <laughs> but uh, but Jim Ross was trying to say my my real name. It's kind of a kind of butchered it a little bit. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it was cool to see the effort, though. <laughs> it was nice. Yeah. But I, I don't back. think I didn't have. I, I don't. I don't think that uh, I didn't belong there. I think that they, you know, since that I <clears throat> had a tons of heat with with the click at the time. I think they really wanted to to kind of punish me, putting me against Steve Williams in the first round. So uh, and you know, I wish I would have been interviewed for this draw for all team. Because I have like different, uh, and there's there's a lot of things uh, that I've seen that they didn't talk about. But uh, for one thing, I know that uh, Hot from the Road Warriors came up to me and asked me if I would take a dive for Doctor Dead being in the first match against him, and I I told Ox, I said, Mike, go back to Steve and just tell him to go, you know, f himself. <laughs> because uh, he's in for the fight of his life, you know. Never I'm gonna make a dive for anyone. So, so uh, I felt like maybe Steve Wynn might have been a little bit afraid, you know, of you know this whole thing. You know, he wasn't uh, as uh, secure as everybody thought that he was. He wasn't as confident as everybody thought he was that confident because he would have never asked. Uh, 
they'll hawk a little royer that came up to me and asked me to take advice for, for Steve. Never he would have done that. So uh, I felt like I had a chance to maybe, you know, to get a win over him. You know? yeah. On the documentary that aired on Viceland, Bruce Pritchard, they played a clip from his podcast saying that it was a random draw, that everyone got together in his office, picked names out of a hat, yeah. and that's how the first round uh, well, opponents... We all know it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> that was my question. Okay. <laughs> no, we all know. I don't believe that for a second, because first, my match, I was... I had only a one-week uh, notice to this thing, you know, Bruce Pritchard called me and uh, I, I was kind of, uh, I was, they weren't doing anything with me. Uh, at one point they called me and say, okay, you're done. Now we want you to buy, Vince wants you to buy, uh, get a trunk made with a fleur de lis, which is like the Quebec thing and uh, mm-hmm. Kate, like David Boy Smith. You're starting next Monday. That was maybe a month or two before uh, before that they called me for Brawl for All. And then that Friday, I'm calling at the office. I, I just want to tell you that I didn't get my flight, my airfare tickets yet. So for my, next Monday, uh, no, we change our mind. We're going to send you to Memphis, to the, uh, which was like the uh, OVW at the time, but it was Memphis Power Pro. So I got sent out there, and then, and then I got somehow I got back home. Uh, I was at my house, and then I out of nowhere I got a phone call from from Bruce. And I picked it up, and he goes, "Just uh, got a great idea for you, Carl." I say, "Yeah, I was so happy because they haven't done anything with me for a while, but I was under a contract." So, um, so I said, "Yeah, what is it?" He goes. It's, it's like a tournament, and it's, uh, it's uh, 16 guys, you get 5,000 per fight, it's takedowns, and, you know, if you, uh, five points when you, if you hit him in the head, and things like that, it gives me the whole rundown of the, the rules and things like that, which, by the way, nobody knew the rules exactly what they were, and um, and he said, your, your fight is next next Monday against Dr. Betts, Steve Williams. So never heard of any drawing. And I felt okay with everything that I've put them through. Uh, they probably want to know if I've got the balls to to do it and to, to stand in front of, uh, mm-hmm. of the guy who's got the most, who's so over, you know, like everybody thinks he's so great as a... Um, a shooter, a football pro, football player, and all American four times, and this and they gave Steve Williams like three months to train, you know, or a bunch of times, uh, a lot of times to train before the tournament start, and I had just a one week, so I'm I'm going to a uh, sort of an MMA place. And, uh, I don't know a single leg down, a double leg takedown. I don't know nothing about takedowns. I haven't drilled no combination in, in boxing. I don't think anybody has done anyways. So I'm just going there with what I, you know, with, with what I know as far as 
basically street fight or things like that. So, but I'm bringing a coach with me. So when do you see that I brought a coach with me, my own personal coach? Then they came up to me and I said, your fight's not going to be this Monday. It's going to be next Monday. So I had paid for his flight. I'd pay for his hotel. I had to carry him on the road with him, with me for a few days. And then basically we, we didn't do that, that fight. They, I think uh, they just gave me a match against Edge and we, I didn't do the brawl for all that week. I did the next week. So it's just, just getting thrown out of your element, kind of. And uh, so I, I did uh, three rounds. I took him down a few times. I had points. Uh, I did really good. Uh, they stopped the fight. It was like eight seconds left in the, in the fight. And, yeah. and I, I, felt like, I felt like they could have let it run for eight seconds because Steve was not a gas. Uh, the, the punch uh, towards the, the, the end of the last round was weren't like hurting or anything. And um, so I, I, I felt, you know, could have let it go. But um, I, I, I just felt like it was kind of, they wanted Steve to look good, you know. So uh, they never expected Bart to to go to, to him like that. But uh, actually, actually, Steve was on top for the, for the whole match, you know, until the last round. Like, I mean, uh, conditioning for boxing or conditioning for MMA, conditioning for wrestling and conditioning for a marathon or conditioning for hockey, it's all different conditioning. So it, it didn't, it didn't uh, make the guys look good. And it, like, like Jim said, it didn't uh, really get no one over. Maybe a little bit barred. I thought, I thought for my, on, on my point of view, I've seen articles that they wanted to put Barb Gunn against Mike Tyson. That was the plan because they, they had magazines. I've seen the WWF magazines with, with that story written in the magazines and nobody had spoken about that on that documentary, which I was kind of surprised. <laughs> but uh, I, I think some of the coaching staff that have trained Bart in boxing uh, to get him ready for Butterbean thought that he might uh, get a chance to win that fight. But the way it came across, it's like Vince was pissed and and uh, Vince wanted revenge because Bart had ruined uh, Steve Williams or Vince's plan for Steve Williams to go against Steve Austin. So I think it came across maybe a little bit wrong, but I mean, Bruce was really close to that project, Jim Ross as well, and Vince Russo too. So uh, I don't know why they didn't mention the, uh, the storyline with Mike Tyson was in, no, was like thrown somewhere in the magazines. But so it's I really don't know. You know, during the uh, documentary on Viceland, both Cornette and Jr. Uh, agreed that it was the quote-unquote worst idea in the history of wrestling. Uh, would you agree with that? And was that kind of the uh, general census uh, amongst the boys in the back? Well, 
yeah, it was fun for the boys. Like it was very probably more entertaining for the boys than it was for the crowd. I mean, <laughs> it was every every single raw for all fight was sold out at the uh, monitor in the back. You know, like all the chairs were taken. Everybody was watching. Everybody wanted to know who was going to knock out who and who was going to be the toughest guy. But uh, it was, it's not MMA, it's not UFC, it's pro wrestling. So that's got nothing to do with pro wrestling, basically. If someone like Rock Lesnar wants to do that type of fight, or like CM Punk did, you just train for it and you just go into that, that sport, you know? So I, we, nobody would like, you know, think what's, what this tournament's got to do with pro wrestling. Nobody understood, understood what was the reason why this was happening. You know, it didn't make sense to nobody. And totally. But, but, you know, I knew that Bart was confident because I was, you know, traveling a lot with him and I knew that Bob Ollie was tough because I had wrestled Bob many times and like Bob would come to me after his matches and say, ah, I like working against you because, you know, I hit you and then you hit me and we both see stars and then at school and, and then, um, and, and, and uh, Bob had a lot of critiques, you know, from different uh, guys that worked with him because he was stiff, you know? So, uh, that made sense. And uh, and Bart was always bragging about that if he had to take on Iron Sheik at his best, he would like turn him down, and put him flat back on his back. So, and everybody was saying, "Ah, oh, Bart, come on, man, you would be because <laughs> like a bronze medal or a gold medalist or whatever." And then uh, he was he was very confident that he would put Sheik on his back, and so. I was not surprised that Bart did good during that tournament and he was a good uh, underdog, you know, it surprised a lot of people, but uh, I kind of knew that he was going to be a tough guy to beat. So it's kind of, it's funny, but it was like, yeah, probably one of the worst ideas ever in pro wrestling history. <laughs> a few minutes ago, you talked about your relationship with Vince McMahon, said he always did you well. Um, but you did reference your run-ins with the click, specifically Kevin Nash. A lot of people know the story about the Montreal house show in 1995, where you didn't want to put him over. There was some back and forth with the office. For those who may not know that story, why was it so important to you not to lose that night to Kevin Nash, who at the time was the world champion? Yeah. Yeah. Very easy. Uh, WrestleMania 10, uh, me and Jacques were supposed to have our uh, Vince and Pat had promised, especially Vince had promised me and Jacques that we would have our biggest win ever at WrestleMania 10, a clean one, two, three win against Men on a Mission. Because we were like, uh, Jacques wasn't happy the way that we were like, uh, uh, the way that we we were performing, we were having great matches. We had like tons of heat with, with the crowd. The people really hated us, but we always, uh, you know, we won by uh, the Quebec rules, the titles, or 
we were cheating <laughs> one way or another, but it was like really, it was never like a a win with our our finish, you know, on TV on Raw or something like that with a, an established team. Uh, yeah, we we lost against Marty Jannetty one two three kid. We regained with our finish the tower at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and then we have lost uh, against Men on a Mission, and we regained maybe. Uh, I think with one, two, three kids, Marty Jenny was a, a week before we regained the title. And I think the other time I was in England, Birmingham, England, and Croydon, uh, London, England. We one day only we lost the title and regained it back. But uh, we uh, we never had like a powerful push for being world tag team champions. It wasn't like straight uh, even this cheating it's all right because you're a heel and people hate you but it was not like you know we we were like uh promised a uh, a clean solid win in the middle and then when one racial mania came in uh they said uh good, good news and bad news and you know when they say that it's too bad news basically <laughs> but uh they said which one do you want first oh you guys gonna retain your title but there we're gonna put them over by can out so Jacques kind of lost it that afternoon he was so mad so pissed and he's telling me and you know, all we're we're going to put them over. We're going to drop the shafts or we're going to do whatever they want. We're just, we should give our notice tonight and go to WCW and let the contract roll over and just go to WCW. I'm sick of that shit. And then lied, you know, I'm supposed to make, as I was telling you, I'm supposed to make that much money. They're under with my money. They're, they, they, they promised me, you know, a million dollars and, they only like even me so far like three hundred or three fifty and or said I'm gonna do. Well, he said anyway, and then I said I'm not gonna go to WCW. It took me to, like almost two years just to being able to have a conversation with Vince McMahon to get to know JJ Dillon, to get to know Jim Ross, to get to know Pat Paris, get to know the boys, get to know everybody. I'm not going to restart all that over again with Bishop, with Kevin Sullivan, with guys that I don't know. I uh, And I grew up, you know, with WrestleMania 1. I grew up in the North, and I'm a WWF guy, and I, I'm not going to go to WCW. I don't, I don't want to go there. So he was kind of took that hard, but kind of understood that I didn't want to go there. So he said, well... I'm gonna. We're gonna do this WrestleMania. He said, "You're gonna. We're gonna go for a suplex on Mabel. He's gonna shove me. A shove you. We're gonna start to interact like something's gonna happen." He said, "We're gonna plant that grain that me and you eventually are gonna fight against each other. And I want to do my retirement match in Montreal. And I want 50 grand for it. And I want Vince to square off with my money. And uh, and then I'm gonna retire. And I don't need this business anymore. And blah 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 blah." So I was like, good, you know, I'm, I'm going to prepare to the next stage of my career, which is I wanted to go for the IC title. That was my goal then. So uh, uh, we're doing all that. So we're doing the Montreal show. They don't expect more than three or 4,000 people for Jacques' retirement match. So we, we did a lot of 
things in Montreal, and we ended up with a sold-out crowd, 18,500 people. Like, that's our show. Vince decides that he's going to bring all the camera crew to take for Coliseum video. Well, not all the trucks, but, you know, two cameras. So it was supposed to be on Coliseum video, anyways. And um, at a special event. And... Um, and doing the main events again, Sean, and we're killing. You know, we're working on top of Brett, Owen, Idart, Taker, Yokozuna, Double J, Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, everybody's on that card. Uh, ten matches. We're main eventing the whole thing. We're killing it. And then uh, we're so excited. So Jacques goes, calls me the next day, says, uh, we can do the uh, the stadium. Uh, I'm gonna call Vince. Gonna be you against Backlund for the world title at the stadium in Montreal, and I'm gonna be in your corner. So we shook hands at the end of the match when Jacques beat me. So we shook hands, and all the boys came in the ring, and they put Jacques on their shoulders, and all the pyros and everything. So Vince was there, Pat was there, the whole you know. The whole uh, office is there, basically. So it was a great... It, it gave me an opportunity to show that I could work main event, that I could do, you know... Uh, could, you know, given the chance, I could draw big crowds and uh, and I could do the job and I could be a champion. And main event thing, you know, work, I, I proved, basically, that I could work with any, anybody and I could have a good match with anybody. So uh, we're starting the uh, discussion for the stadium for me and Backlund. And at first, Vince kind, uh, kind of, don't say no, kind of agree with Chuck and we're going towards that 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 way where I would maybe get this trap for a few days and then eventually I would drop it back to someone else or back-to-back doing or whatever, but at least we would have an happy ending in Montreal and I would become the world champion and Jacques was going to be my manager. And uh, when Macho Man left the WWF as a color commentator and he went as a wrestler for uh, Turner and WCW, Vince was so pissed and he called Jacques and he said, Jacques, uh, we can't do that show anymore. And Jock said, what do you mean we can't do that? So said, we don't have what it takes. I just lost Macho Man. And he was losing other guys to WCW. And Jock told Vince as well, Vince, if I don't go with you, I'm going to go with Alton WCW at the stadium. And Vince goes, well, just, just do what you have to do, Jock. But I'm not going to the stadium. And uh, he says, oh, who, are, who else are you going to go with? He said, you can't go with Carl Ouellette because I own Carl Ouellette. But I mean, for me, I, I was proud to hear that Vince said I own Carl Ouellette. For me, it meant that uh, he, he cared about me and he, he, he valued my, uh, my talent, you know, being part of his company. So... Uh, it was like uh, another moment where it was uh, hard because it was another moment where Jacques asked me to quit WWF and to go 
and do the show with Hulk and WCW and I let my contract roll out. So I had all my uh, dealings were done for starting as a pirate and uh, it got delayed a little bit. Uh, I started in March uh, 1995 and I was, <sighs> what happened, it's like I was, when I had my meeting with Vince after that retirement match, Vince told me we're going to make you the pirate, we're going to make you so hot. We want to make some retention. We're going to wait two years before we bring you back to Montreal. We'll let the people want you, want you, want you, and eventually we'll give it to them. Like it's going to take two years. And then out of the blue, uh, 1994, uh, that was October, the retirement match. Vince called me home. Say, hey, Carl, this is Vince. How are you? This is, uh, I got a little favor to ask you. Could you, uh, would you wrestle Shawn Michaels in Montreal for my, because uh, IRS was supposed to go against him, but he got injured, and I, I really need you for that show because it's in Montreal and you're there. So I was supposed to, uh, you know, be out for two years off Montreal. But uh, I said, well, that's going to be another great moment for me to show what I can do against, you know, Shawn Michaels. So I said, all right, I'll do that. And then, uh, and then Jock found out with the articles in the paper that I was wrestling Sean. And then and he, he, he keeps calling me and he goes, you know, I just beat you in Montreal and now you're going to lose against Sean again. And uh, you're going to turn out into a jobber and uh, uh, that's going to ruin the plans for the stadium and this and that. And, uh, so I, I was like, 26, 27, I, I got so confused. I didn't know what to do. Should I go to WCW? Uh, my heart was with WWF. I, and uh, I, I really got like confused a lot. So, um, so George, uh, it was uh, George Animal Seal was the agent. And he said, okay, you and Sean, and then uh, we want Sean to go over. And, uh, at first, I said, uh, I got really confused with my conversation with Jock and everything. And I don't blame him. It's just myself. You know, I don't, I don't blame him. But, so I first I told Sean that I'm going to lose. So Sean got really pissed off. And then, uh, <laughs> and then maybe 15, 20 minutes after I sat down in my dressing room and I went back to him and said, no, I'm sorry for what I said. I just, I, I don't know. I'm just, I just, no, I'm really sorry. I'll, I'll, uh, we'll do something, you know, with me with the feet on the rope, just just something that makes me look good a little bit, but you beat me because Sean was really pissed. He goes, 30 guys just put me over in the Royal Rumble. Now you, you're here and you don't want to put me over. What's the problem with you? Blah, blah, blah. So, so I got a little heat there. I'd say tons of heat with Sean, basically. But what I didn't understand is just after that March, you know, I start my character, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, and undefeated for eight months. Me and Triple H both started at the same time, both undefeated together for eight, nine months. And then uh, out of nowhere during a TV tapings, um, in an afternoon, Kevin Nash walks up to me and goes, Montreal, uh, November 15th, it's me and you, it's a big blue jackknife, one, two, three. And I didn't understand why he was coming, why he was coming at me with the arrogance and with 
calling the finish. Uh, of course, you're the champ, but you know, usually you you know you you get the finish in the afternoon, and the agent comes to you and brings the other guy, uh, ask you what what he wants, tell them tell us what what the agent wants, what Vince wants basically, and uh, so, so it was totally. So uh, Tony Guerrilla came up to me that afternoon. I was there early and goes, uh, yeah, you big Kev, big blue jackknife there for 13, 14 minutes. And then I had been wound up by the boys during the whole time. And, uh, you know, I mean, also two things in my mind, the Bob Backlund match was like taken out of basically a world title that was taken out that maybe I, I was thinking maybe they would let me win Montreal, Quebec City, and drop it back in Toronto to Kevin, just, you know, just to get, to see what I could do or how things were going to turn out. And I think also in my mind, okay, if, uh, am I going to turn out to, you know, whatever. And then uh, I, uh, I just got worked out with all the boys you know, traveling with all the boys and the click had so much heat. And uh, I kind of, I wanted to be the guy that was going to send out to all the boys against the click. And then uh, <laughs> I I told them I was not going to lose against Kevin. And, and, and uh, it was like, oh, super, like, you cannot imagine the tension in the dressing room. Like, Kevin walked straight up, like, in front of me. And I looked at him. I guess you don't want to lose tonight. So I'm not losing. I'm going to lose. I'll take my bag right now. I'm going home. You won't have any main events. So, and I never, and Vince was calling, and Garia came up to me. Briscoe was talking to me over the phone, everybody, and I never changed my mind. And it was sold out of the curtain. So that's why. And then the next, and then the next day, everybody was calling me. Uh, you should apologize. And blah 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 blah. So I, kind of the next day, I kind of regretted what I've done the night before. So I was full of good intention. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, made a mistake yesterday last night. And, but uh. And then I hit a leg drop from the top rope, and I got it right on the nose by accident. <laughs> but he, he thought it was Oops. potato, <laughs> intentional potato, and then uh, the whole thing uh, was messy. Because <laughs> all the boys came out of the dressing room. They were all on the Nordic bench that was in Quebec City. They were all on the... On the boards, come on, kill the shit out of him, beat him up, kill it. Like, and, and Montreal was the same thing, so so it was like super crazy. And um, we went to Europe for two weeks. I uh, was going over Aldo Montoya every night, and they were looking at me in the bus. They hated me for going over every night on their buddy. Uh, you know, just incredible. Aldo and uh, uh, yeah, and as soon as we hit the states, uh, I think it was even Ohio or something like that. Uh, big meeting, uh, 
was like maybe 1,500 people for our show. No reason for Vince to be there. Vince shows up. Nine of the top guys get a meeting with Vince. And uh, for reading that in Sean's book, they they were getting rid of people and they wanted to get rid of me. And Vince, no, I will handle Carl. We're not getting rid of him. I'll keep him. I will handle him. But after that meeting, I was getting jobbed out every night. But I, I should have, you know, I should have been along with that program because uh, when Triple H, Triple H is at curtain call, he got jobbed out for a year in a row and got beat by Ultimate Warrior 12 seconds at WrestleMania. But he went through it and passed on to this, that test and then they, they kind of rebuilt around him anyways after that. But I really... At that age and with my entourage or the people that I was asking questions, I was, uh, I thought that I was done with them, that I was finished. So I, uh, I got a surgery for an hernia and, uh, it was just a way to get out of my contract and I let it roll out and I went to WCW and, uh, and then it was never the same after me and job. It was just a tough relationship. Because I never wanted to go to WCW, and uh, he kept asking me all the time. And uh, by the time we went there, uh, things didn't work out good. And back in the WWS, in the '98, '99, and I just think that that brawl for all was just uh, a revenge for for the whole thing. What happened with Kevin? I think uh, he probably had fun thinking about. Steve Williams uh, beat the shit out of Carl, so that's the way I look at it. But I'm not, I'm not so sure. Well, to your credit, and some a lot of people may not be aware of this, that retirement match you talked about that you worked with Jacques. Obviously, Jacques is a legend in Montreal. And in my research for this interview, I saw this and I was quite taken aback. That was the same week as the Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair match WCW ran where Flair put his career on the line. And just so people understand this, you and Jacques drew a bigger house than that Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair match, which is pretty insane to think about. So when people hear everything you just said, you know, you in Montreal is quite a big deal, right? I mean, that's what it all boiled down to. It's you in Montreal. It's kind of, you know, a little bit like what we heard with Bret Hart, what would go on with Bret Hart later on with yeah. him not wanting to lose in Canada. Yeah. Oh, well, we were on. As a Quebecers, like, we outdrew any city for our, for our shows. I'd say we would be in Vancouver or Pittsburgh or for a house show, we would have, like, sometimes in, in, in 93... I mean, when I first started in 93, we did good house shows. I think uh, the Garden was good, Philadelphia was good, Chicago. But eventually, uh, it, it went down a little bit. In Montreal, we always had like 8,000. The first time we, we wrestled the Steiner, it was probably 12,000, 13,000, sometimes 10,000. The Smoking Guns, the Head Shrinkers was like 15,000. We always had like you know, good crowd. Like we, we were really drawing good at the forum, you know, as the Quebecers. And, uh, 
And then when we lost the title against the Hedgehinkers in Vermont, which is not too far with Montreal, everybody came from Montreal to, they, they thought we would retain the title. That's when we really uh, finished that angle where, well, kind of, that was another thing where me and Jacques didn't get along in the ring. And then in Montreal, I totally turned Jacques with the job and I, I got mad at him and I started booting him. And then, and then it was like, I turned heel and I snapped the fingers, like just turned heel. And then the, the whole build up to the retirement match was insane. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that. I didn't even know that we had beat the uh, crowd wise. We had beat like Hogan and Flair. Uh, you just for me, you know, you're, you're just, I just found out now, but, uh, yeah, it was anyway, not nobody in the office, everybody was saying it was not going to be, I remember having that talk, me and John talking to Patterson and he said, you won't draw more than four, 5,000 tops. And we told him we were going to sell out. And, uh, and then we got to say, though, that uh, at that time, Vince was still in good terms with Vince. Vince, uh, we, did, uh, we did a show on a, one of the top radio shows in Montreal with some hockey players from the Montreal Canadiens and, and good hosts and things like that. And we, me and John, got into an argument. We, we were working the guys. And then they have Vince getting on the line, talking with the, with them about the, the fight and everything. And then um, Vince said something and, and Jock, and so we kind of all got together on the plan and we worked those guys and me and Jock start pushing each other in the radio uh, room. And everybody thought it was a shoot. Like we really worked it as a shoot and everybody bit on it. Like they all bite. I, uh, so it was one of the wrestling matches. Like, you didn't have internet back then. Every newspaper from hockey, baseball, the top columnists were there, plugged in with their laptop, and we're making front pages, back pages from every major newspaper, TV news, radio news. We're we're more popular than the Montreal Canadiens or the Montreal Expo at that time. I mean, it was a solid, I did a public workout just, just with weights in a gym. And it was like, uh, four or 500 people outside lined up to get into the gym. Gym was sold out. I mean, we couldn't move. Everybody was outside on the windows. It really looked good. I mean, it was like, it was big. So that's why Jacques really thought that we could sell out the stadium for a world title. And that's why, like, this year, when I won the title with Ring of Honor, things got so hyped up here in Montreal that everybody thought that we could put 20,000 people for a world title defense with Ring of Honor, which I mm. think would have been super good for Ring of Honor to have that kind of uh, publicity because I think that would have uh, kind of translated into what All In did in Chicago, you know, for mm -hmm. Cody and the boxing. 
and uh, Ring of Honor was part of it, but I, you know, it was promoted as Cody and the Bucks uh, promoting it. But uh, I think that would have done the same thing for Ring of Honor. Uh, but the, we didn't have any. Uh, we couldn't have. We couldn't have predicted that uh, me becoming the world champion was going to make such a wave here because uh, I was part of every major show and uh, made like uh, every big newspaper columnist and everything was talking about that world championship and uh, the story was so big. But anyways, with the pandemic, you know, with, with, we were going to still be like, uh, it would have worked. So, yeah. So basically, the way things turned out, it's almost good, you know. But yeah, that's uh, that's the whole thing with Kevin Nash. But like, uh, uh, now I'm in good terms with Kevin. I don't blame him for anything. And basically, I blame myself, you know. Uh, I wasn't better than them, but they were really cocky. And they will be the first to admit that they were cocky and they were arrogant. But uh, I, I felt you know when you you get in that big business, it's, it's so much at stake, money, uh, fame, and glory, and all this, and um, a lot of egos are are involved. It's very competitive, and uh, uh, a lot of jealousy, and there's so many traps. You know, the traps of you know being a star, and then eventually. As things start to go to your head, you start to believe in not that, not believing in yourself like I believe in myself, but believe that you're maybe better than everyone else, not the wrestlers, but the world itself, you know, like better than the nine to five worker, the eight to five or eight to four worker or the construction guy or basically all the fans that are encouraging you to become who you are you you start thinking that you're better than them and then yeah, there's a lot of things that uh you have to go through it to uh to realize all the all the traps that are there waiting for you and and then just i was uh watching uh uh I'm uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Luc Besson, who's a producer, uh, a filmmaker, you know, who has done Taken 1, 2, 3, uh, the movie Taxi, and uh, The Fifth Element with Bruce Willis, and he had done, like, tremendous good films, and uh, he was, uh, you know... Uh, I was listening to what he's been through lately, like, he girls were going out with him like he had like mistresses and uh, and they thought that they would have a chance to be in one of his movies and he said that listening to his interview last night that he didn't know that he had so much power that those girls wanted to maybe he's just playing the game but it's just to tell you that uh, how it becomes you know when you become famous and you get power a little bit and uh, sometimes, you know, your attention, uh, uh, drift away. And then, uh, 
you're more focused on the guild and the bar that you're more focused on getting the world title and things like that and you're mm-hmm. starting to you know take it easy a little bit more so you're not so much focused and then a bunch of things you know that fumbles into other things that makes you uh, make the the wrong decisions or maybe I thought it was more uh, that they needed needed me more than I needed them. I don't know what it was, but uh, it was just young and uh, really uh, not much experience about uh, something big like that. And uh, I just uh, mishandled the situation. But uh, it was certainly... I've uh, I've regret, but uh, you know I can only learn from it. I cannot change the past, so uh, that's why I'm trying to adjust, like I said, and but just to become a better person and uh, work on myself, just to 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 be able to achieve what I wanted to achieve and stop blaming the whole world for for the things that I did wrong. Because most of the times, your guys, it's uh, it's Pat Patterson's fault. It's Six Man's fault. It's this guy's fault. It's the Booker Booker's fault. It's uh, everyone's fault, but nobody nobody's looking at himself in the mirror. So I just felt like I had to look at myself in the mirror and uh, and really refocus on on my goal and uh, and stop blaming the whole world for my misfortune. I think I think we got two two more questions for you, and I I can't yeah. let this interview end without asking you about this one. So, Kyle mentioned Bret Hart a minute ago and comparing the situations in Montreal. Uh, so you worked with Bret Hart at the third ever in your house. I think it was in Saginaw, Michigan, September '95. Just a fantastic match. If the listeners haven't seen that match, look it up on the WWE Network. Uh, but overall, you guys, you just had a really good program. You know, you stole Brett's classic uh, leather jacket. And for me, growing up, uh, my formative years as a wrestling fan was basically the entirety of the 90s. I'm 36 years old. So this was a very okay. memorable feud and uh, program for me. So I want to ask you, because the ultimate question in school among the wrestling fans during that period, you know, was always who's better, Brett or Sean. So, so I got to know, do you have a higher opinion then of, of Brett Hart due to like the, the great work that you guys did together? I know you've been in the ring with both of them. Um, yeah. how, how would, how would you compare Brett and Sean as workers? Who, who would you have the higher opinion of? I think that I, uh, uh, China, tremendous respect for Brett. I really love his work. I, I've had tremendous matches with him, and I have hated uh, Sean at the time. But I never, never said that he wasn't a great worker. But he was—he was like he—he he could have like a great match, and then he—it he would go come back uh, and towards like the monitors or in, in the locker rooms and say, "Try to top that." You know, like he was so arrogant, you know, like, <laughs> oh, no. like, oh yeah, he was loud and he was bragging, but he was performing too. He was delivering, you know, but he was like everything that he would, uh, someone would keep for himself. Like he would just say it loud. And, and then I've seen like, he, he had done like some, 
like I mean that that time that they were like uh, just messing around, Chris Candido, Sunny, you know, like I couldn't believe. Like I think it was a TV taping one time, and then uh, Candido's with Sunny, and then off the air, they're they're well in the air, they're doing something with Sean, like a where Sean kind of kicks out Candido out of the picture and the show finished with Sean and Sunny in the ring together. But after that, like Sean kisses her, put her on the ring, goes over her, does some push-ups on top of her, like, like almost like he's doing her, you know, <laughs> and Candido's watching the monitor and he's like in pain, you know, he's like, yeah, sad that his girlfriend like and it's in front of like uh, an audience live and the boys are laughing in the back and and those you know and then those kinds of things that really made uh, Sean like uh, someone that everybody hated it, you know and uh, and that thing that we had in common was that Brett never liked Sean so when Brett knew that I didn't like Sean, so that was like almost a bond between me and Brett where, you know, we wanted to have such a good match. And um, so that was like kind of cool to have like that, that connection with, with Brett. It would give me his phone number and then I could call him home and I could like, uh, you know, throw some meat around the bones preparing for a pay-per-view match or something like that. And if I was not on a program with him and I would call home and Brett was always either on the pool, training in the gym or on the treadmill. So he was like in super great shape. That's <laughs> 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 just, just meaning that he was always on the treadmill. But, uh, <laughs> But for pay-per-view, he would pick up the phone and he would like he would really be cool with it. So that's uh, I really like that. And but if I, but I think uh, Sean is a there's there's something that Sean there's a lot of things that Sean do that are very spectacular, and uh, he can make you look like anybody. He can make you look. He can anybody like anybody that can. Uh, Sean can make it look like a million bucks. And not that Brett cannot do it, but it's just a different type of worker. Sean's like the way he can sell as a heel and the way that he can be so arrogant and the way that he's easy to, uh, a great bump taker, a great uh, risk taker. Uh, Brett was more conventional. he wouldn't take like uh, as many risks as Sean, uh, but he was like very, very, very good psychology-wise. It's hard to tell which one. Brett had super great psychology. Sean had great psychology, but I think overall, uh, Sean might have been a, a, a better, a better. Uh, I mean, I remember in my match, my match with Sean, it was like so easy to wrestle, easy, easy. Hmm. So, so to wrap yeah. things up, uh, we would just like to uh, to know uh, once this social distancing ends, 
what future goals do you have for yourself professionally? And uh, is there anything you haven't done that you would like to do? Yeah, uh, that's, that, that's the thing. A lot of times people are asking me how long I still want to go. Uh, well, I, I really want to turn my real life you know, achievement into a movie. Uh, and, uh, I think I need, uh, I need to, to become a, uh, big attraction, you know, to sell out places and arenas and, uh, just, just, just to be like a, uh, a top attraction, you know, for that's people want to see the entrance, the special entrance. want to see, uh, a great character and a cool match and a, and a great exit, you know, and it's a super spectacular exit as well. So I'm working on all those things right now. And, uh, I think, uh, once again, like, um, put all that together and, uh, uh being able to, uh, to work that out with creative, uh, ring of honor and things like that. Uh, because we're going to go probably go live every week starting in June or July when we can. That was the plan anyways. Uh, uh, that's, that's my goal, and, you know, just to uh, create uh, something like a, a buzz like uh, Hogan did and Steve Austin, Rock and NWO. Uh, not knowing anything about how it's going to happen, how it's going to take form and how it's going to, uh, uh, get there, but just knowing like, uh, the end result and, uh, that's what I want. And, uh, I'm going to work towards that. And once I, I feel fully accomplished and, uh, I'll be uh, ready to, uh, to take on another task and to really just this business or Well, we want to thank you so much for joining the program tonight. This was a really good interview for us. It's it's fascinating to hear you talk about your experiences in the business, being around for you know thirty years, and and you're not done yet. You still got time left. You're still doing big things, and uh, we'll certainly be tuning into Ring of Honor this summer when you guys are back at it to see what you got for us next. Um, All the listeners, you can find PCO on Twitter at PCO is not human. And uh, all the latest, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll be tweeting about what's what's coming up in June, and uh, hopefully we will be seeing you in action real soon. Of course, I thank you very much, uh, all of you guys. Uh, it's been like uh, a, a real fun interview. Uh, I really uh, enjoy like the interaction and uh, all your questions were like uh, great questions. Uh, it's it's always. Uh, things that it's fun to talk about. <laughs> it's, uh, there's so many things happening um, backstage, uh, behind the scenes, and I think uh, it makes the sport so much more entertaining. <laughs> you know, uh, Absolutely. Uh, all, all what's going on in the back as well. Or, we- uh, or you have, you, you have a, a, a little taste of it, at, the, at least. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Thank you very much. Appreciate we would, it. We would love to have you back on at some point in the future. Maybe we can have you back on when you get that second world title run. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. <laughs> we'll see. Anytime that things are shifting in a good way, uh, you, I'll be glad to be back on for sure and we'll talk about the new things. 
Thank you so much. So there you have it. Uh, PCO, been around the wrestling business for over 30 years. Lots of great information there. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We're looking forward to doing more interviews in the weeks ahead. So stay tuned to the broadcast. But with that said, it is now time for the signature Kyle Ross, I Love This Sport, Deep Dive of the Week. Take it away, Kyle. Well, got to thank Justin for this week's deep dive. And I'm thinking Justin because, uh, you know, we text all throughout the week and Justin always likes to text Mount Rushmore ideas. Uh, and some of those make air. Obviously I've gotten a lot of texts from listeners saying they've enjoyed those. So hopefully we'll maybe have some more coming, but, uh, I'm going to round out a Mount Rushmore that I've actually already started in previous deep dives. So Justin texted us, uh, what was it last weekend over, uh, Sometime on Saturday or Sunday, I think it was, Mount Rushmore of six-man tags. And I thought that was a quite an interesting question. And I had realized that over the last month or so, I'd actually given out two six-mans uh, in previous deep dives. The All Japan Pro Wrestling six-man that occurred on April 20th, 1991. It's about 420. I uh, recommend that everyone watch accordingly. That would be Masawa, Kawada, Kobashi against Saruta. Tawe and Fuji for those keeping score at home. I also very recently, uh, two weeks ago, talked about the ROH Dragon Gate six man. And then lo and behold, <laughs> another gift we got from Ring of Honor, not just the PCO interview, but Ring of Honor uh, made that match available on its YouTube channel uh, for free. And what was interesting about that is on the deep dive, I told people, I was like, yeah, I don't really know where you can watch this. Mm-hmm. I got the DVD, but, but, you know, and lo and behold, a few days later, it shows up for everyone to watch. Uh, I watched it immediately. I tweeted out the link. You can check that out at, at TRP Kyle. Um, so those two matches, the ROH Dragon Gate, six man, blood uh, generation versus two fixer. And then the all Japan six man, they was, would both be on my Mount Rushmore six man. So I thought for this week, why not follow that? Why not just finish off uh, things and just give the last two? So I'm hoping for a little repeat of the magic we got with the ROH Dragon Gate Six Man in that our next entrant uh, is not available on the internet right now. Don't know where you can see this. So hopefully it shows up magically after I give it out here. And that would be Von Erichs versus Freebirds, two out of three falls, July 4th, 1983. Absolutely unreal heat in this one, this was the height of world-class championship wrestling, their best year, uh, obviously, and probably the best match in the history of that promotion. My fourth and final uh, member of the Mount Rushmore six-man tags would be the Shield and the Wyatt family from WWE Elimination Chamber 2014. So two uh, deep dives for you to make this week. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the Shield versus Wyatt family match. Watch it again. Uh, if you have, watch it for the first time if you haven't. And then hopefully we can all cross our fingers and hope Von Erichs versus Freebirds shows up magically online. If somebody knows where they can find it, please tweet that at me because I would love to watch it again. Um, the 1984 Bad Street match I know is available pretty readily on YouTube, but uh, not 1983. Uh, and I'm hoping to see that show up sometime soon. 
Yeah, you know, ever since you talked about this match over text with us over the weekend, the Von Erichs Freebirds match from 83, I have really been wanting to see this one. So I do hope, Kyle, you've worked some magic <laughs> and it shows up again because yeah. you linked us to a, a description of the match and it sounds amazing. I've never seen it. And uh, yeah, hopefully that shows up. If you guys know where to find it, tweet us at Top Rope Nation. We'll send it out to uh, all the listeners. Yeah, I watched it twice. I want to say, was that... Um, my Cammy's old house. So I, I want to say it was like, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, I watched it like twice in the same week. Well, I, I found it and was very happy. And then a buddy of mine came over. I was like, dude, you won't believe what I found. Let's watch it. Then kind of disappeared not long after that. So um, would love to see it reappear online. And it's since it took place in Fort Worth, it is not available on the network. If you're wondering that in the world-class section, the, the Fort Worth stuff, um, is not shown on those TV uh, episodes. That's only stuff from the sportatorium, those tapings in Dallas. All right. So very nice. Inspired by Justin Joint and his Mount Rushmore uh, topics. There's Kyle's Mount Rushmore of six-man tags. Justin, thank you for the topic because those are some excellent matches to watch. You're welcome. All different, too. Yeah. All all very different, even though they're all six-mans. They're all different six-mans. So, um, you know, after I kind of came to my answer, I remember I texted Justin, you know, I'm kind of really admiring my answer here. So I wanted to give it up. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, patron of the show, Tim, he was at that uh, Elimination Chamber show in 2014. Got to throw that out there. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So he'll be he'll be excited, Kyle, that you picked that one uh, for your Mount Rushmore. And I also want to throw a shout out to all the patrons of the show, all of you that have been supporting us over on patreon it's the best way to support the show and help us continue to grow what we've been doing here since uh, the summer of 2016 crazy guys that it's it's almost been this summer four years since we started this broadcast but shout out to Derek, gabe jake kyle tim as i mentioned liam ryan sean and greg always appreciate your support uh, you can get a hold of us as i said at top rope nation on twitter we are also on instagram facebook you can find me at Ryan Drosty on Twitter. That's D-R-O-S-T-E. Kyle, where can they find you on Twitter? At TRP Kyle. And Justin. Uh, at Justin Joint. Yep, there you I go. I think you're right. <laughs> Justin just took a, a little break from social media, so he's got he's to think about it, but he'll, he'll be around. Yeah. Tweet him. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a question mark in that handle or no? <laughs> I am Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I am Justin. Maybe you should change it to I am Justin Joint. No, yeah, it's at Justin Joint, J O Y N T. So, with that said, hope you enjoy the interview, all the discussion on the situation at WWE. Uh, we will be back with you next week, episode 139. Let us know what you think. Tweet us, send us an email, topropenation at gmail.com. And like I said at the beginning of the broadcast, leave us those five star reviews. Leave us a written review, even better. We will read it on the program next week. And by the way, if you do leave us a written review, leave your Twitter username in the review so we can get a hold of you. We'll send you a free Top Rope Nation die-cut sticker in the mail. So with that said, I am Ryan Drosty here for Justin Joint and Kyle Ross. We'll catch you guys next week. Thank you.